0: This is Our American Stories, but we'd love to bring you all the types of stories, well, that you want to hear. So no screaming and yelling here, no arguing or debating. Love, death, music, sports, the arts. And by the way, we've been really digging into stories about rehabilitation and celebrating, celebrating the transformation from darkness to light that occurs in these stories and hopefully showing all that are listening that it can be done that in the end, everyone has a unique contribution to give to this world, and that only that person can do it. And today, we have such a story of a former addict named Josh Horton, and we're fortunate that he's here with us in the studio. And Josh, thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks. I'm glad to be here.
0: You bet. Josh, many addiction stories start with folks' childhoods and the lack of stability or being surrounded by bad influences. What was your childhood like, your parents' like, and how, in the end, do you think those things shaped you?
1: Uh, well, I was a child. I was about eight weeks old, and my, my father was killed in a boating accident in Panama City Beach, Florida. Um, and that left me with my mother. Uh, we had moved back to Atlanta, and she was 22 years old, widowed. And we, we basically were, were living with my grandparents. I was alone. She had brought... Um, some people in the house, just so we could try and make it uh, to pay rent, other things, and and you know, my family comes from New Orleans, and it's just a, it's such a drinking culture in New Orleans. They they were raised Catholic, and, and drinking was just part of what we did mm-hmm. as a as a family. It was around every wedding, every you mean it was just part of it. And in fact, and until I got sober, I just thought that that's the way things were done. Right? I just it was just a part of everything we did. It was cultural in sure. in, in a sense. Sure, um, and as a result, I mean, not everybody in my family suffers from alcoholism, uh, but there is there is definitely that that trait there, and I've I've lost family members as a result of it.
0: You told the Oxford Eagle you said uh, the eagle said he had grown up around addiction, got drunk as a young man, and married an addict, and that didn't last long that marriage, and in the end, didn't really know any other way. Talk about that.
1: Well, I mean, we. You know, it's, it's something that's just not talked about. You know, you're not educated as this, as, and especially, I'm a little older than, than a lot of the people I, I go to school with, and when I was a child, addiction just wasn't talked about as a disease. It was It's a moral failure. I, I grew up, I'm, in addition to being a recovering alcoholic, I'm a recovering Southern Baptist. And I, I really, I was surrounded by, you know, just this fire and brimstone idea of it's, you're sinning you need to pray harder you need to do better just pull yourself up by the bootstraps and and go get it and, and i couldn't i couldn't figure out how to do that i didn't know how to how to just be a better person and quit drinking I, I didn't realize the the biopsychosocial aspects of this disease and it was until i i learned what was really going on with me that i could start to tackle those those issues one at a time and, and start to make some recovery and how bad
0: did things get for you what was the breaking point most people have one? Uh, what was yours
1: you know th- this is interesting because i've had some really bad bottoms that, and that's what we refer to it as you know you you talk about hitting rock bottom and i've had some some very bad ones i've I've laid on hospital beds, getting my stomach pumped i've been I've woke up in, in a jail cell with forty seven felonies and no idea of what i'd done um, but the, what really changed my life, I I had received a public drunk. This was my last drunk and, and really what altered my life. I had, I woke up and I didn't know where I was. I didn't know what I had done. And I'm banging on the, the cell glass door asking the jailer, you know, what's my charges? Because I had no idea. And, and it, sometimes it had been really bad. I mean, the, in Atlanta, you know, I woke up and I, I was facing centuries in prison Um and it's just a miracle that that didn't that didn't pan out that way, but this last one I had started attending a community college. I had started seeing progress in my own you know academic future i start people were telling me that I could do this, that I could have a life that I could you know start to be somebody and and I finally had something to lose and this this small community college in ittawamba county had started, you know, showing me that, you know, you, you've got some opportunity here if you'll just, you know, if you'll just apply yourself. And, you know, so the last drunk I had, I was, it was a public drunk, which is not, you know, considering my history, I've got 20 substance use disorder-related convictions, and that that was by far not the worst one. But I ha- I finally had something to lose. And I woke up and I was like, this has got to stop. And it just so happens the only recovery meeting in – Itawamba County met once a week on Thursday nights, and it was in my backyard at the the Methodist church behind my house. And I used to see these guys out there smoking, and I was like, I'm pretty sure I know what these guys are up to. Uh, And and it was just, you know, I I call it, you know, a God wink that, you know, these things are put in my path. And it was, you know, I I look back at it now, and it, realize it was probably not a coincidence those guys were there when I was when I was ready to get sober but yeah my last drunk was not my worst drunk uh, but it was the final drunk it was and it was it was the one where I finally saw that I had some opportunity and had something to lose
0: yep and these these other guys had you ever have had, had you ever reached out to a group like this before tried or did you give it a full shot when you did it if you did? Talk about that. I, mean, I have some friends who did go to these things, but they went because they thought they had to. They didn't go because they wanted to be there, and it didn't work out under that under those conditions. I
1: was introduced as a teenager to to recovery, but it was it was forced upon me by the judicial system, and I'm grateful that it was because I don't think when I was ready, I knew where to go. I had you know I they they would shown me enough of it to where I knew that there was a solution out there, and and when I was when I was you know beaten up thoroughly, I, I, I knew where to go to get the help. Um, so well,
0: hold that thought, Josh. And when we come back, we're going to learn about that road to recovery. We've got Josh Horton; he's here in studio. We deal with addiction. Uh, indeed, it's one of the few things in life, along with prison reform, when you get left and right consensus that something's wrong, and we got to fix it. And it's touching. While it's touching most families in this country, I would submit if you have a family, then there's addiction close or it's coming. This is Our American Stories, Josh Horton, addiction, right here in little Oxford, Mississippi. More after these messages. This is our American Stories, and we continue our conversation with Josh Horton. And we're in Oxford, Mississippi, about an hour south of Memphis. That's where this broadcast originates. We had an idea. Everything always comes from New York and Los Angeles. And, well, I'm from New York, and everybody from New York was from little towns in middle America, and they would come to New York. So we thought, why don't we bring small-town America to Los Angeles and New York in a broadcast? What a crazy idea. And it's doing well, folks. We're in Atlanta. We're in Sacramento. We're all over the country. And uh, it's just a pleasure to be able to take stories from all over the country and bring them to you. And one of the things we've been recurrently touching upon is addiction and the impact it has on families. And always in the end, we try to look for redemptive stories when we can, because in the end, uh, how else can we learn how to get past these things, but through storytelling and example. In the end, that's what inspires people. And that's what stories ultimately have is their ultimate power. And it's their imitative power. And we continue with Josh right here in studio. Josh, you, you stumbled upon a young female African-American judge who, for no explicable reason, looked at you and saw something in you. And she could have really thrown the book at you. And perhaps you wouldn't be here because of this lady. What was her name? Why did she do what she did for you? What, what do you think was her reasoning, and maybe it had nothing to do with the mind in the end, but maybe the heart. But talk about this lady. What was her name, and talk about the circumstances that got you before her.
1: Well, this is this is one of those pivotal moments in my life when I turn around in retrospect and I can see some, some defining moments. Uh, we have not been able to locate this woman. The, the courtroom she was in was a downtown Atlanta uh, jail in the basement, and they had carted me in in the morning after – firing a weapon after drinking. Um, I had fired a, a weapon at my my townhome in, in Alpharetta. And the, we when we reached out to try and find this judge, it was not her normal courtroom. It was a white male's courtroom, and she was substituting that day. And I called my attorney, and we've looked at the, the bond paperwork to try and decipher her signature, but we have not been able to do that. Now, I've been working with the MacArthur Justice Clinic here at Ole Miss Law, and we have an, a wonderful executive assistant named Angela McRae who has been digging in Atlanta trying to find out who this woman is. Um, because w- when I look at it now, I, I see it for, for what it really is. And and here's a woman who has fought every glass ceiling in her life. She, she's she gone through law school in a white male-dominated field. She's broken through all these barriers. And here she is setting this opportunity. She's got this this punk kid in front of her who – she has the potential to throw the book at, and for no inexplicable reason, she decides to throw out all the felonies against me. Uh, the bailiff uh, turned around and told me that I was quite possibly the luckiest SOB he had ever seen in his life. Um, and I, I didn't understand then what had really just happened, but she had just saved my future. And, and we do intend to find, find this woman and, and thank her uh, at a later date. But, you know, the, 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 the fact that she did that is now, it, what it taught me was, was mercy. Because she, she had the opportunity to, for revenge and to, to go back. And the, the lesson she taught me that day was mercy. And that's really all I can, you know, and, and that's probably one of the most valuable lessons I've ever been taught.
0: Indeed, and, and, and too often in our judicial system, uh, that's lacking. And uh, one of the things we do regularly here on this show is talk to inmates uh, across the board, not just drug-related. Uh, some people have even committed violent crimes. Uh, and what happens with the rest of their life? Sure. And sometimes you've got to show mercy, and sometimes some people well, some people have to be locked up. And, and, and we have to separate these things out and, and ask the hard questions. And for the longest time, there wasn't even a conversation about these things. Mm. And luckily for all, all of us, uh, there is that conversation. Let's talk about this small group. Uh, because I think the hardest thing for men to do is to get in front of a bunch of other men and say they got a problem. I mean, pride is generally one of the great uh, inhibitors of human development, and it can get in the way of everything. So talk about that moment, that humility uh, you had to find in yourself and what this support group and these, these, these men, these strangers uh, did for you.
1: Well, I had grown up thinking that I was alone and I was a moral defect and I was broken. And what these men showed me is that I wasn't alone. And by telling me their their stories and their experience, they they loved me until I was able to learn how to love myself. And that showed me through example what I needed to do. And then they, they just guided me through it. And they taught me how to be the man I had always wanted to be by being that man themselves.
0: And, and with these guys, t- t- not their names, but just their backgrounds, because what I always find interesting is we're always looking for people who look like ourselves to relate to. And in my experience, watching these kind of small groups, even great church small groups or any small groups, you know, get outside yourself. That that 70-year-old has something to teach mm. you, that you're a farmer, that guy from the city has something to teach you. You're a city guy, that, that guy working on cars has something to teach you. In the end, it, it breaks what we would traditionally think are class bonds and vocational bonds and even racial bonds uh, and gender bonds. Um, talk about some of the, the the barriers that were broken in this group.
1: Sure, the the man that that helped me initially was a seventy year old uh, Wisconsin man who had retired in Mississippi. Had never been in trouble with the law, and he rode Harley Davidsons. I mean, the, and he would drive me, you know, forty miles a day to to these these groups to where I could I could get access to to some of the tools I was needing for for life skills, and, and it was that kind of altruism that really opened my eyes
0: and talk about now you were at you were at uh, you were at a community college here in Mississippi and then ultimately what brings you to Ole Miss how does that happen who are some of the people who help make that happen for you because as you know um, and this is one of the things we talk about a lot on this show as well you know when family breaks down society pays and we're not talking nearly enough about these things I mean the cost of fatherlessness to this country um, finally you're getting the Brookings Institution and the American Enterprise Institute to agree that so many of our problems stem right from this central problem, mm-hmm. uh, the breakdown of family and core cultural and social institutions that can put bodies on people. Uh, talk about uh, how how you got there and some of the folks that helped you get there.
1: Well, the professors at Itawamba Community College kept telling me, you know, to, to pursue these things. They showed, they told me that anything was possible if I would just do the work, just do what's in front of you and, and, and do the right thing and it's going to show up for you and that... And that happened. I, I earned a, a 4.0 at Itawamba Community College. I interviewed with Chuck Smith here at, at Ole Miss, who's a poli-sci professor, and I was granted the Lucky Day Scholarship, which is given out to 25 individuals in Mississippi a year uh, that, that come from the, the poverty backgrounds and the, you know without lacking resources, basically, to, yep. to pay for college. So he stepped in, and I was given a full scholarship to the University of Mississippi, uh, to, to pursue my, my bachelor's degree.
0: And so what do you study when you're at, uh, what's your undergraduate
1: uh, interest? What was that uh, when you were at Ole Miss undergraduate? Well, I knew I wanted to go to law school, so I asked somebody, I was like, what do I major? And they said, it doesn't really matter. They said, pick something you like and do well. And so I, I, there were several different ones I liked. I liked philosophy, I liked um, political science, but in the end I ended up choosing sociology and, and then minoring in political science.
0: You know, there's a quote here, and it says, "My recovery teaches me that my dark past is the greatest asset I have. With it, we can avert death and misery for others." It's quite the paradox. Talk about that, if you can.
1: Yeah, Henry Ford actually said that, and it's um, it's it's crazy. We we call it spiritual jujitsu, where where I'm at, and you know, the things that seem most obvious, you know, surrendering to win, giving to receive, these these ideas that that we don't really understand, and we're not taught as children. We're taught we need to go out and get and take. And, you know, and, and what we learn, I've had to relearn my whole approach on life, and, and it's really counterintuitive to the way I was brought up in society and, and taught how to think. This, this is just its completely the opposite of what I always thought. Well, was.
0: when we come back, we're going to dig into Josh's passage through Ole Miss Law School, what he's doing now with his life and, and his road to recovery. And by the way, one of our favorite books, a book called Obliquity, is about this very thing. And, uh, and John Kay had studied some of the, the, the men who had brought the most shareholder value to American businesses. And Steve Jobs was one. And Jack Welch was another in the interview. And he said, how did you do it? How did you deliver all that shareholder value? And he said, we didn't care about shareholder value. Sometimes, actually, we would go to the shareholders and say, it's going to be a bad year. Because we were thinking about the long term. And so he, their criticism of so many CEOs was thinking about the short term and not the long-term health of their company. And so to that point, sometimes the things we're after, we're going after the wrong way and with the wrong heart. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. And when we come back, more of Josh Horton's story from Addiction to Redemption. This is Our American Stories. American Stories. We continue our conversation with Josh Horton. And when we left off, Josh was an undergraduate looking to go to law school. I, too, went to law school. I went to the University of Virginia Law School. And it's impacted my life to this day, how I think about things and things I I love to talk about with friends. And Josh, you you end up at Ole Miss Law School. And what do you want to do with that education? I mean, a lot of people just go in because they're thinking, I want to be a lawyer. And that's probably three-quarters of the class, but there's always that quarter in the class that have other plans with that law degree. Uh, talk about why you went and what you were thinking about when you went there and what you've been doing since.
1: I knew uh, I knew that my law degree was going to be the ticket I needed to get punched, to, to get my voice heard in certain circles, uh, and to put me in, in touch with the the people that could really make a difference with how our, our criminal justice system is executed, especially with substance use disorder and the way we're addressing it as a nation. Um, I think it's globally embarrassing the way we're treating individuals um, that are suffering.
0: And so you, you're, at, you're at the law school and you start to dig into some work. And I want to have you talk or tell the story of one particular person, and it's a a heck of a story, River McGraw, Rivers McGraw. Talk about
1: Rivers with us. Rivers was a young man who, well, I I need to back up a little bit from there. David McGee, who owns the Oxford Eagle, had had lost a son uh, due to substance use disorder, and me and him had struck up a friendship after an interview I had done uh, with the Oxford Eagle. um, And Mrs. McGraw Lauren uh, Rivers' mother had contacted me via social media after that article came out, and and I can't tell you the hundreds of people that reached out to me after that came out, uh, all telling me I, I've got a family member I'm suffering. I you know the the different people coming forward and saying we we've, we've got to do something about this was really eye opening to me. I I knew it was going on. I did not know the proportions that that we're dealing with it. Um, But she told me she had a son at Ole Miss that he was struggling. And she asked me if I would help him. And I said, sure, absolutely. I said, that's, you know, that's what we do. Um, And I had met him. I had taken him out uh, to meet some other other guys in recovery and got him hooked up with, with somebody that was willing to mentor him and, Seemed to he was very respectful, very polite, young man, um, great looking. You know, is every everything that you think you want in a son? Rivers Rivers had those qualities, uh, but he also was, you know, he suffered from substance use disorder. And the next night, he went out, and like so many people do, he relapsed, and he got picked up, and he had possession of a uh, controlled substance and DUI. And he had been in trouble with the law before, and he, uh, he thought he was going to prison, and he didn't think there was a way out, and he went home and he took his life that morning when he got out of jail.
0: And by the way, on, on, uh, on a Change.org petition that you created, I want to read something you wrote, and very often writers don't like hearing what they read, but this is what you wrote about uh, this, this tragedy, this tragedy that beset the McGraw family and Rivers. In particular, we lost, we lost somebody who had all kinds of things to offer us. And you wrote this, quote, I just had one of the hardest conversations I've had in recovery with the mother of a young man who lost the battle with substance abuse this morning. God bless you, ma'am. I had just spent the evening with him, and he was fighting. The 20-year-old Ole Miss student lost his life, and we as a community lost again due to our inability to confront a disease that claims the lives of more young people than any other single factor. What is it going to take to realize that the stigma and criminalization associated with substance use disorder is killing people and destroying families? Please consider joining me in addressing this issue in our community, state, and nation. Have no mistake about it, we are in the middle of a war, but we are not addressing it effectively. We must provide the resources, education, and the tools to proactively combat this epidemic. And I don't think you could have said it any better, uh, Josh. Uh, so, so, talk about what that was like to have that conversation
1: with this mother. I, I, it, I was speechless. I didn't know how to respond to her. She was extremely emotional. Emotional. And, and that's, I mean, I, I could never imagine being put in that, that position, being, you know, racing from my home. Um, to she's, you know to find your child dead, and you know the last text she got from him was, "I'm sorry, I just can't do this anymore to you guys." And you know she, it, it's not her fault. And what she told me really uh, was not what I was expecting. She said, "I want you to keep fighting, keep doing what you're doing, and I want to help you." And I just thought that was so courageous of her, especially at a time like that, to, to be willing to step up and say, we got to do something. I want to make sure my son did not die in vain. I just thought that was, that just took it to a whole nother level.
0: And that takes a lot of courage and for the mom to step out. Uh, just a personal story on our side. And I think most families, if they admit it, have one. Uh, we had a dear and close cousin and no one knew she had a drug problem. She kept it to herself and she just kept doing them. And she kept having marriage problems in her answer was to just take more drugs. And she combined a couple of drugs, and she had just finished church activities in the morning, uh, went home, her husband went to work down in the shipyards down in the coast of Mississippi. Uh, they're from Biloxi. And uh, he didn't hear from her at the usual time that he expected, and so he asked the neighbor to check on her, and she had taken a pistol and, and shot herself. And uh, that was two years ago. And... By the way, no brush with the law. So in the end, as we come back in the last section, you know this this problem affects families who have n- have no no cross path or crossroads with the criminal justice system. And you, if you would have told any of us that young, beautiful Tamara had a drug problem, we wouldn't have known it. We wouldn't have known why. You look on her Facebook; the posts were beautiful and they were happy. Um, she was doing all these things in church. She was serving everybody else, but it turned out only her best friend knew. Ultimately, when we got down deep into it. Her best friend said Tamera was in a dark and lonely place and she just didn't want to bear that burden on anybody. And so she was just sucking it up for the benefit of her kids, for the rest of the family. And then one day she couldn't take it anymore. So if you're listening, you know, in, and this has happened, we'd love to hear your stories. I think that's how we, we get at this in the end. And we're going to be talking with, with Josh on the, in the final segment about both the system, the system level and that's incarceration and the criminalization. But for all of you who, well, your kids had nothing to do with the criminal justice system. And it's still the majority of the cases where it's just, look, VA, look at the soldiers who are killing themselves. They're not incarcerated. They're just, they're, they're alone in a trailer somewhere. And the VA just, well, they handed them some drugs and then they, well, they just left them alone. And that loneliness ultimately is killing a lot of people too. And it's so many things, and it's so many families. And again, when we come back with Josh, we're going to talk about his work on the systemic level and also on the personal level. And it's good to see that he's addressing both. There's no way to tackle this problem without looking at both. And also looking at the spiritual dimension of this, because there is most definitely some of the great programs in this country and recovery programs uh, had a spiritual dimension to them. And we're going to talk about that and much more with Josh Horton here on Our American Stories this is Lee Habib. And again, your stories, post them at our website, org. If you want to remain anonymous, that's fine. A first name will do. Um, we know that sometimes, well, sometimes it just, uh, the scar is too deep, the pain's too real. And sometimes you just want to protect someone's identity. We get it. So just leave a message. We can get in touch with you or just record something. Again, Josh Horton for the hour. We're talking about recovery, we're talking about redemption, we're talking about the tragedy that is addiction, and substance abuse. More after these messages. Our American stories and we're continuing our conversation with Josh Horton and addiction is the subject, recovery and the criminal justice system on the systemic level, and also just on the personal level, uh, how addiction is ravaging families as well and and what we can do about it on both of those levels as well, both the systemic and the personal, for families and church groups. Uh, how we can throw bodies, find out these things, create systems where people can express themselves, reach out and not feel stigmatized, because I think in the end, it's the stigma. I knew that was what did it with Tamara. She didn't want anybody in town. She would have thought, I imagine she was like so close to everyone in her church. And then, by the way, the pastor said this was our great failure. It is our great failures a church. His, his homily and his message that next week really was a throwdown to everybody. How close are we to our people and how much do we love our people? Do we love them enough to hear anything they have to say to us? And we we all failed, Tamara, and I did too. So uh, anyway, give me a second. So Josh, you you're in law school, and ultimately you're working on this great you're working on this great uh, you have this mission really. And uh, talk about how you start to well meet people in high places who are I think probably surprising to you. Uh, because, again, this cuts across political political aisles. Next thing you know, you're talking to someone like Governor Phil Bryant. Talk about that.
1: Well, I, I, uh, Rivers' uh, stepfather is high up in Department of Public Safety here in Mississippi. And when this tragedy struck, Phil Bryant came to the funeral and they read the statement that you had uh, read earlier uh, that was on change.org and is is a lot of communities are doing across the states and at the federal level they're putting together these opiate task force um it's it's not confined to just opiates but i think because of the pharmaceutical industry and the the epidemic of the you know the opiates leading to heroin addiction and then ultimately death i think that's this is a, a good avenue for for them to tackle first um is is tackling the, the pharmaceutical industry and the opiates there uh, because it is, it's it's reached epidemic-level proportions nationally. And, you know, we have what the equivalent of a jumbo jet full of young people going down every day in this country due to overdose. If that happened in the airline industry, planes would cease leaving the ground. Um, but because we, you know, have stigmatized and criminalized this issue so much, nobody wants to talk about it. And about 40 years ago, uh, with the war on drugs and the policies being implemented, the private prisons figured out a genius business model that if we don't treat substance use disorder and criminalize it, these guys are going to keep coming back. So it ends up putting a revolving door on the jails and prisons. These uh, private prison corporations like CCA... GO, they're, they're publicly traded on Wall Street. They guarantee certain levels of incarceration to their stockholders, and they are making money off of substance use disorder. Over 60% of the people incarcerated are nonviolent substance use disorder-related convictions, and that's atrocious uh, as a society to, to be profiting off of uh, a mental disorder and a disease in, in such you know, enormous amounts. And by the way, you've had
0: you know pretty, pretty remarkable work being done in the state of Texas and the state of Georgia over the past several years. We, we've been following one, uh, one court, and it's a drug court in, in Texas, and we've had Judge Bobby Francis on. And my goodness, it's been something like 2,000 people pulled out. They've closed one full prison already in Texas and not only saved the taxpayers a bundle of money, but more importantly saved a bunch of lives. We talked to some of the people who've gone through that that, that system. And it's odd. I mean, it was a bunch of evangelical Republicans who pushed this in the state of Texas, and not enough being written about uh, this, again, this remarkable consensus between Democrats and Republicans on an issue uh, that touches so many of us. So talk about uh, specific uh, reforms that you think uh, could, be, could be passed along in, in states, for folks listening in states that are not working on this problem. Um, talk about some of the reforms, and talk about what a parent can do to be heard. Because i got to tell you, state legislators are not the federal government. This is what I love about our country. This is why I love federalism. If you were to try to change the law in Washington, good luck. But I'll tell you, a couple of hundred parents get together and march to their state capital, and you're all federalists now. Because you can. It can be done. And I've seen it done. So talk about what parents can do, how they can organize, and how they can turn their grief
1: into hope. I mean, you've got to start reaching out to your local representatives and and be that force at the local level and letting them know that that you are pro-recovery and you vote. And that's, you know, that's the way we get things changed. We mobilize. We organize. We've got to start speaking out and and quit letting the fear of judgment keep us from, from doing the right thing. And I think that's what happens in so many cases. And even in the recovery communities, you know, we get sober, we get a little bit of our life back, we start making some money, we get a family, and we're so afraid that we're going to lose these things if we come out and and we tell people, you know, some of our history. Mine, I'm kind of forced to because I've got to report to the bar, so, you know, I've got to disclose all this stuff anyway. But it's really opened my eyes into the power of coming forward and, and trying to to make a difference in the lives of others, because you can.
0: Yeah, And, and it, what's odd is I, I think the country is so ready for this. I mean, I don't, I, you know, there might be some people who will stigmatize, but I think ultimately it's self-stigmatization at this point. I mean, I know with Tamara, none of us would have had a problem. In the end, we didn't maybe make that clear enough to her, but she's just that kind of girl who wanted to carry the burden too. And so, you know, in the end, some of it, some of it's so deeply personal. What's been the most rewarding moment of your work so far and what you hope to be your life's work? Josh:
1: Every morning I wake up is the most re- rewarding moment because I've been given a life beyond my wildest dreams of what I thought was possible. so I, I couldn't even answer that every day I get it's just I'm, I'm living on borrowed time.
0: And let's talk about uh, again, we're talking about the prison reform and we got I think there are solutions and clear solutions. and so the addict is now not in prison and they're home. Um, what do we do about these personal? issues and, and how do we how do we describe why they're happening so more frequently? Uh in other words, we can talk about symptoms and we can talk about causes. Um and I'm wondering what is the literature out there and what what are folks saying about this epidemic and what they think the causes are. It can't just be the drug itself. It can't just be pharma. I mean, look, I, I know too many kids who don't take these pills. What's going on that some kids and some adults are taking them and so many others aren't what's happening in those people's lives
1: i just think our cultures become so separate from from each other and from you know from even reality in a, in a lot of cases we isolate we're you know into technology a lot of people don't even leave their homes anymore to watch movies i mean we just don't we don't have any real community uh, the way we did 20 or 30 years ago and i think the loss of that connection feeds into it and we're looking for an external solution to an internal problem and we're never going to find it i don't care if you're if you're shooting heroin or you're looking for a new car it's it's going to wear off and you're not going to be able to fix that and that's really what i've i've learned about my own disease that my alcoholism has very little to do with the booze it's the it's the trying to find that external solution to the internal problem and this guy told me one time, he said, Josh, you know, you're not a human being having a spiritual experience. You're a spiritual being having a human experience. And that made a lot of sense to me.
0: You know, talk about, you know, one of the essays we, we spent an hour on was Alexander Solzhenitsyn who came to the United States. And he everyone was expecting this real rip on communism because, my goodness, the guy spent his life in a gulag criticizing communism. But he, was, he came to America and it spent a year before the speech and he warned America about consumerism. And he, he said that communism was a disease of the soul and it would kill you. He said, but let me tell you about consumerism, that'll kill you too. And it was a warning shot to America um, that few conservatives liked and well, well, lots of liberals towards the progressive end didn't like Solzhenitsyn either. And he was making both of them miserable because he said collectivism, well, boy, I've lived under that. Good luck with that. Look at the alcoholism rates of high, highly socialistic countries. And he said, but capitalism has its downsides, and it was consumerism. And that was his warning shot. It sounds like uh, that's
1: yours, too. It's. I mean, it's, it's definitely, I think our, our consumerism as a nation definitely feeds into this addictive mentality.
0: Um, yeah, and Facebook, I think. I, I'm, this technology, as you had pointed out, I think it makes people feel more lonely, not more connected. They're, they're not real friends. People are posting uh, what are seemingly glamorous aspects of their life, shielding no one posts their bad shot. Right. No one posts their bad day. And I see it with my own little girl, and i got to take it away from her because she's almost addicted to the technology itself, which then is a portal to so many other bad things. Josh, we appreciate you spending the time here uh, sharing your life, uh, the good and the bad, uh, not easy to, to share the bad but it's a fundamental part of what you do and what you're going to continue to do. I'm sure we're going to hear more from you. And uh, final thought, thought, 15 seconds to the audience, uh, Josh. Just a final thought.
1: Just uh, don't be afraid to step up and make a difference because your, your voice does matter. And, and unfortunately, it's, you know, it can cost lives if you don't.
0: Well, well put, and we believe that voices matter. And attached to those voices are stories. And that's what we do here on on this show. We like to hear other people's stories. We don't talk about ourselves here, rarely. And if it is, it's a personal story like mine with my beautiful niece, Tamara. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Josh Horton, a remarkable life story, and can't wait to see what continues to happen in his life. More after these messages. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now it's time for our This Day in History segment, brought to us by Hillsdale College, the best place in America to learn about our nation's history, the Constitution, great literature, philosophy. And by the way, if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale can get to you with their terrific online courses. And in this feature, you're about to meet someone you've definitely heard of, but likely don't truly know.
2: Born in the summer of his 27th year Coming home to a place he'd never been before He left yesterday behind him You might say he was
3: born again You might say he found the key for every door
4: You've probably tasted their beer of course. 105 years of only pure Rocky Mountain spring water. Make it yours. Make it Coors. For some of you, it's more than a taste. It's a tradition. And for others of you, it's a daily tradition. After an honest day's work.
2: When a day's work was mining for gold under the frozen ground for 12 straight hours, happy hour had a whole new
4: meaning. Yet few have thought about the name and where it came from. How it was almost spelled Kors with a K. A beer that's still known as the Banquet Beer. A German name that got Americanized and changed to a C. A German name for a German man, Adolf Kors, who became an American man, an American legend. This is his story. On February 4th, 1847, Adolf Kors was born into a family that was stable, until it wasn't. Tuberculosis took his mother from him when he was 14, and then came for father when he was 15. He was swiftly and suddenly an orphan. Perhaps providentially, there was a brewery right across the street from him, a brewery that would teach the young orphan a trade that he could use, that we would use, for the rest of his life. Once again, things were getting stable, until they weren't. The king of Prussia decided he wanted to become emperor of a united Germany, and Prussian men were forced to make a choice. Fight the king's war, or leave the country. Adolf left the country, and he wasn't alone. An astounding 500,000 Germans emigrated to the United States between 1866 and 1870. With no money to his name, and almost no English in his vocabulary, the 21-year-old Adolf hopped onto a ship heading for Baltimore as an undocumented stowaway. Ashamed for not having paid his way, he took any job he could get in Baltimore to take care of the bill working as a laborer, in a brewery, as a fireman, a bricklayer, and a stone cutter. When he saved enough to venture westward, he did, landing at a brewery in a Chicago suburb. And when he saved even more, he ventured westward even more. His greatest luggage that he carried was his greatest vision, opening a brewery that he could call his own. Phil Anschutz's book Out Where the West Begins tells us why he decided to go westward and specifically where. Coors heard talk of a booming new western city where Germans were the single largest foreign-born group and he knew that where there were Germans there would be brewing opportunities. Following his dream, in 1872, Coors climbed aboard the three-year-old transcontinental railroad headed for Denver to settle there, if you could call it settling. He trekked across prairies, through wilderness, and into the foothills of the Rocky Mountains, all in search of superior water to brew a superior beer. Coors would find his golden supply in Golden, Colorado, where springs near Clear Creek River bubbled up with cold, crisp water from the snow-capped Rocky Mountains. And a golden location it was. The population of the Colorado Territory was growing, and fast. Anschutz writes, he learned that Clear Creek had been the motherlode of the Colorado Gold Rush, attracting some 100,000 fortune seekers in one of the greatest mass migrations in U.S. history. Cores did not seek the heavy yellow metal in Clear Creek he figured its water could be transformed into liquid gold. To top it off, his golden town of Golden was fifteen miles away from Denver, a young city, but one with seven breweries. In Golden, he would be it. Only three months after acquiring his golden property, he was out in the town, carting around and selling his very first batch of beer all 31 barrels of it. And customers quickly began to pour into town, just to get his beer. Anschutz notes how many arrived on the Colorado Central Railroad, which built a spur line across Clear Creek to the brewery. Today, the Burlington Southern Santa Fe still operates that beer line. A mere ten years later, won a national brewing competition at the big event. The biggest event of the era. The World's Fair in Chicago. Once again, things were getting stable. Until they weren't. This is Lee Habib.
0: And this is Our American Stories. And more on this remarkable American story Our This Day in History segment brought to you by Hillsdale College. More after this. our American stories. And every once in a while, we want to lighten it up in a segment. We mash together a few light stories. Sometimes they're uplifting stories that we'll mash together. These are light. And recently, our producer Jesse came across a story in the news about a pet squirrel that defended he and his owners from a burglar. Here's that story. In Meridian, Idaho, Adam Pearl
5: walked into his home on Tuesday realized something didn't seem quite right
6: i came in the front door and well i saw snow prints out in the front driveway going to the back of the house and so i thought something was awry because nobody usually goes through the yard
5: pearl was immediately greeted by his pet squirrel named joey when he got home but then he started noticing a few doors that would normally be closed were open after making his way to the back bedroom his fear was confirmed once he looked at his gun safe.
6: I started looking at it, and I saw the scratches that were around the walking area. Um, and I, at that point, I knew somebody was definitely in here messing around.
5: Pearl then called Meridian Police, and when Officer Ashley Turner came out to take a look, Joey the Squirrel just had to say hello. Um, and during her investigations,
6: uh, Joey had run in the bedroom just screwing around like he always does between her legs and kind of startled her and uh, she says whoa what was that?
5: I said ah, don't worry about that that's that's just Joey, pet squirrel you know. Turner then asked Pearl if Joey would bite.
6: I said well he usually doesn't bite but you never know because he is a squirrel.
5: <laughs> Officer Turner went on her way only to return a few hours later with some of Pearl's stolen belongings in some unbelievable news. She said while she was questioning
6: the individual, uh, he had scratches on his hand. So he, she asked him, So, did you get that from the squirrel? And he says, Yeah, damn thing kept attacking
5: me. I wouldn't stop until I left. <laughs> Joey the squirrel is now being hailed a hero.
6: Nobody can believe it because who can say they have a squirrel that guards their house? Which is crazy. You can't ask for much more than that. He's a pain in the butt, but he's great.
5: (laughs) Pearl said he then thanked his pet squirrel, Joey, by giving him Whoppers candies, his favorite treat.
6: We're still working on the being nice to people part, but maybe I shouldn't work on that too much because he obviously took care of the house.
5: For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse
0: Edwards. I love Whoppers too, Jesse. Yeah. That's a great story. You love those animal stories, don't you? I do. I know. You ever heard anybody who had a pet squirrel?
5: I haven't. You'd think they'd bite the hell out of you. I mean,
0: I've had squirrels in my house once when I was a kid. They tore the place up. Yeah, they're kind of squirrely. They are squirrely. And now we go to a, well, just a light story right here in our own town. Uh, We're in Oxford, Mississippi. This is flyover country. We're about an hour south of Memphis. Great musical part of the world. Short drive to Nashville. Short drive to New Orleans. Short drive to Memphis. Does it get any better than that for people who love music? And it's a sports town, because it's home of Ole Miss. And that's SEC football, and that's SEC everything. College football, that is, the best kind. And here's a segment that happened on a radio show, a local radio show here in town and around Mississippi called Head to Head. And it's a sports show, and I actually know the guys who do it. They're good guys. And the show is set up to interview former Ole Miss football player Denzel Camdicci, a big star, a great player, They had him on the line, and we're about to begin what they expected to be just a normal little interview. Let's take a listen and see what happened.
5: He is on your radio this afternoon. Denzel, appreciate uh, a few minutes of your time. How are you?
0: (laughs) Denzel, you there? This is not going as well
5: as I had hoped. I think Denzel's asleep. That's it's better. Phone in his ear. Hey Denzel, are you there? <laughs> okay, this He's is sleep. I don't think this I is know. going to work.
0: No, I don't think it's going to work. It's working perfectly. <laughs> it is. This is great. For a great. morning show—that's gold. <laughs> that is gold. That goes in the that goes in the best of C D. Actually, it's not even a morning show. You'll hear it
5: next. That's oh, what gotcha. that's what they found even funnier about this. It was not the morning. <laughs> <And> that is. <laughs>
0: And the host of this radio show, and again, it's head-to-head, and Richard Cross and his pal, well, they didn't know how to respond. This great star is on the air, except, well, he's not on the air. Let's take a listen to their reaction after hearing their guest fell asleep.
5: <sighs> Should I say it? Well, I'm not going to say it. No, don't. Just just let it go. Um, <laughs> Rhino, is he answering when we, as we call back? You're trying. One more I'm time. I'm trying, but I'm, I'm not getting anything. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, let's just move on. Well, uh, oh, that's uh, not going to work out. Okay, I mean, it's, it's early in the day. It's, <laughs> of course, it is 4.20 p.m. as opposed to 4.20 p.m. <laughs> no. um, all right. So... <laughs> Where do you even go with that? Oh, <laughs> I would They just kept him on the line. Sh- and kept, I would have too. Kept tuning in. Like, uh, no, you get pot the, up the fader exactly. every couple of minutes. You
0: get the Jeopardy clock going. You do an over under <laughs> bet on how long he'll be asleep. Get people to call in and scream <laughs> at him. You could have gone in oh. so many direct... These amateurs. I
5: would have milked that for an hour. <laughs> oh,
0: that's an hour radio. That's why we love radio. You never know what's going to happen. That's one of the most highly conditioned athletes in America asleep at four thirty in the afternoon for an interview. By the way, Denzel Kimdichie later tweeted, quote, I had been up in studio all night wrapping up my music project, and I did fall asleep while on the radio. Well, you know, we, we sort, of, sort of busted on that one. And uh, last but not least, our favorite guy, Steven Goldberg's dreams. You heard that right. We're going to hear a dude's daydreams. And not just any dude, one of our favorite dudes... Steve is the former chairman of the sociology department at City College. And he is the foremost expert on patriarchy and a guy who he daydreams a lot. And now we bring you Steve and his latest daydream. And before we do that, Steve reads us his mandatory disclosure.
2: These are all real daydreams that I have had over the past seven decades. They are not written in the sense that one paces the floor at five in the morning trying to write a daydream about X, Y, or Z. These daydreams all simply arrived fully formed, poppied into my head unexpectedly. That's the wonderful thing about daydreams. They require no talent at all. At least back then, and for all I know to this day, The state of Maine was quite a strange place. For example, the potato was king. School started much later in the year than it did anywhere else, uh, so that kids could harvest potatoes. More relevant here, there were plenty of trains, but the trains were only for potatoes. There were no trains for people. For most people, this was an inconvenience, perhaps a major inconvenience. But they had access to planes and cars. At least most of them did, but not a little girl named Diana. Diana's parents um, were poor and didn't own a car, nor could they afford plane fare. A train ticket was within reach, but trains were, as mentioned, only for potatoes. For little Diana, the situation was a disaster. See, Diana um, had contracted an excruciatingly painful disease uh, one that uh, could be fatal if not treated with a protocol available only um, at a hospital in Atlanta, Georgia. People were sympathetic, but the law was undeniably clear the trains were only for potatoes. Despite this, a young lawyer took Diana's case pro bono. Uh, though realizing it was in all likelihood hopeless. hopeless. If that were not bad enough, the lawyer soon learned that the case was to be heard by Judge Crockett, a judge known for brutally uh, rigid allegiance to a literal interpretation of the law. The lawyer looked dejected and Diana forlorn as the case lasted but a few minutes. And the judge rendered his decision. Main law limits the use of trains to potatoes and prohibits their use by human beings. This is clear beyond the possibility of dispute or contradiction. That is the law. All I can add is, she looks like a potato to me.
0: Oh boy. <laughs> These are out there, folks, and we just love them. So when Steven Goldberg sends us one of his daydreams, we do them. And by the way, I love the pet squirrel named Joey. And I like that he named the pet squirrel named Joey just an ordinary war, uh, an ordinary name for an ordinary pet. This is <laughs> Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Just some light stuff. We do it every once in a while. You can go to ouramericannetwork.org, OurAmericanNetwork.org to hear and see all that we do. our American stories. And one of our favorite subjects is work, what we do, how we got there and why, and the intersection of commerce too. Because we spend a lot of our times working or scheming or trying to figure out how to get a product to market or how to come up with something new. And sometimes we just do it on general principle, just for fun. And today we're talking to a man with a dream job for anyone who loves the outdoors or animals. And we first learned of him in a Wall Street Journal article by Harriet Torrey, which began with these words. The first time the bears steal human food, they are relocated 30 miles away. The second time, it's 60 miles, and the third time, it's 100. After that, they become consumer product consultants. And by the way, the headline of that article was Nice Trash Can, Let's See What the Bears Think. And well, we're joined by Randy Gravatt, a man with many jobs at the Grizzly and Wolf Discovery Center. In West Yellowstone, Montana, God's country, if ever there is in this great country, among them running the Bear Safety Product Testing Division. And Randy, thanks for joining us.
3: Thanks for having me.
0: Hey, Randy, just a bit about yourself first, your parents, uh, where you grew up, and some of your passions as a young guy.
3: Sure. I grew up in uh, Northeast Pennsylvania in the Poconos, but uh, 21 years ago, uh, came out to Yellowstone, visited, and fell in love with the place, and uh, ended up moving here. I actually live in Idaho, but work in Montana. I'm only 10 miles away from from the uh, Montana border. And and yes, uh, I do have a dream job, um, and and love my job. I've been here at the Grizzly and Wolf Discovery Center 18 years.
0: You know, what people don't know and so often forget in this great country is you get out of Philadelphia, and you go through the rest of Pennsylvania, and the Poconos know it's not Yellowstone, but my goodness, hunting, fishing, and plenty of bears, right?
3: Yes, very much so. Pennsylvania is one of the leading states with black bears. No grizzlies, but lots of black bears.
0: And they're no friend when you're, when you're lost in the woods, are they?
3: Sure, sure. You know, when you surprise a bear, whether it's a black bear or a grizzly, uh, on, on a food source or a mom and her cubs, they can be uh, very defensive.
0: Yeah, news alert while hiking. Don't disturb the bear. This exactly. is pretty simple. And uh, so your, your your parents, tell us a little bit about your, your their life, and a little bit about what they instilled in you, values, your, you know, what you care about, uh, Randy.
3: Sure, sure. Sadly, my dad's not no longer with us, but my dad was a drill instructor in, in the Marines, so I drew up, uh, grew up with a pretty stern uh, background there. Uh, my mom's still alive. She's down in Florida enjoying the warm weather. And by the way, we were 39 below zero, uh, here in West Yellowstone Montana this morning so still trying to warm up.
0: Yeah, and you're not getting mom to visit anytime soon, are you?
3: Oh, no, not when she lives in Florida.
0: Now, tell me this, as you as you're you're doing different jobs along the way, ultimately all of it's to get connected to that great landscape, I can only assume.
3: Yes, very much so. I I am an avid hunter, hiker, fly fisherman, and it's all right in my backyard here.
0: And tell folks about about Yellowstone and and the folks uh, who are listening, who've never been, uh, what they're missing, uh, what they should come and see. And when is a particularly good time to come for those who might be inclined to not want to fight the lines or the, or the, or the traffic or the population that swells? Talk a bit about Yellowstone.
3: Yeah. Well, Yellowstone is very, very big. It's 2.2 million acres. Uh, it is only open to vehicle traffic right around the end of April uh right to around the 1st of November and that's because of the depth of snow that we get but um to me the best time to come is either the end of May or the first two weeks of June um after that you know with the kids getting out of school it does get uh very crowded and it seems to take away the you know the beauty of it when there's so many vehicles and so many people but uh, i've spent a many a day in Yellowstone Park in the month of May and have seen 10 bears in, in one day You do have to be prepared for inclement weather. Um, The park can, you know, elevation-wise, can go very, very high. Um, And and so it can snow at any time of the year. Uh, Snow has been recorded every month of the year, July, August. Um, So pretty crazy. But in the wintertime, definitely a special time to come. You can either go in on a snowmobile or what's called a snow coach, and you experience how the animals that are still in the park, because there is a lot of animals that, that migrate out of the park, but in the wintertime, you have a much better appreciation for those animals that are trying to find a food source when it's, you know, 20, 30, 40 below zero and, and five, six feet of snow on the ground.
0: You know, National Geographic recently did a full, full uh, subject and full issue on Yellowstone. And it, and it spent quite a bit of time on the bears and bear attacks. And I don't know if they were on the increase or just that there's more uh, human contact uh, but talk about you know the 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 nature of that uh, assault and what people can do to prevent it before we dig into this Wall Street Journal article on the other side i mean that 's got to be the worst thing that can happen to you, but what are things you do to either prevent it can you Can you figure out where the bears are ahead of time and then b when you see one, what do you do? what do you actually do
3: sure sure so so there 's an estimated uh, population of seven hundred grizzlies in Yellowstone Park. And an average of one bear attack uh, per year, where there 's uh, around four million visitors, so the chance of getting attacked is is, is pretty slim a uh, better chance of getting struck by lightning. But if and when that encounter does happen there 's a couple things that you need to do is is um, uh, before you uh, you 're leaving the trailhead, you want to um, Uh, make some noise, you're walking with a group of people perhaps, you hear the bear bells that people might wear on their shoes. The whole idea is that uh, grizzly bears in particular do not like to be surprised. And so if you're making noise, you're walking down a trail, um, more than likely you're not going to see a bear because you're going to scare that bear away. But let's say you see that bear at 200 yards, uh, mom and and two cubs perhaps, a grizzly, and so you're going to talk in a low, calm voice, kind of let the bear know, hey, I'm a human, I'm not a, you know, an antelope, I'm not a deer, and, and you're going to start to obviously walk away, um, but not run. Running elicits a chase response, so you want to uh, return to the trailhead, return to your car. But if that bear does decide to charge you, hopefully you've remembered to have your pepper spray, your bear pepper spray, and you're going to have it on your hip where it's easily accessible, that bear is charging at you. That bear can run thirty five miles an hour that 's forty two feet per second. So you have to be ready and, and Yes, that bear is going to be very close ten, fifteen feet away, twenty feet away when you start to discharge that can um, and with a bear's sense of smell, smelling food up to eighteen miles away, um, they, they are greatly affected by that bear pepper spray and and it basically renders them useless for a couple hours they um uh, you know their their eyes are watering they're they're tearing they're coughing and uh, and then of course you're going the opposite way but fortunately not too many encounters but yes you need to be prepared you need to look for fresh bear scat fresh bear sign and let those uh, bears know that you are out there hiking
0: yeah and that's that is pretty extraordinary 4 million visitors 700 grizzlies and only one bear attack per year but there there are probably multiple sightings i would
3: assume oh yeah very much so yeah it's it, it's a um... A, a, a personal you know uh, uh, distance that you need to stay away from those bears and whether it be a bison fifteen hundred pound bison have a a personal space just like a grizzly bear just like a moose and so if you get into that bears personal space then you're threatening that bear, and, and, and perhaps that bear is thinking that you are a threat to them, even, even though, you know, we don't want to have anything to do with them. And, and so, again, you need to, to let your presence be known to those bears, and, and no, people see, see bears all the time. What, what ends up happening is you got the camera in your hand, you want to get that great shot, so you just keep getting closer and closer, and before you know it, uh, whether it's mom and the cubs, uh, and they basically say, hey, that's, that's too close, And then she charges.
0: and by the way, don't get too close to my wife in the morning either. I give her lots of space. When we come back, Randy Gravatt, the Grizzly and Wolf Discovery Center. And he has a great job, a job that obviously he just loves. And it's running the Bear Safety Product Testing over at the Grizzly, Wolf, and Discovery Center. He lives in Idaho, works in the beautiful state of Montana, West Yellowstone. When we come back, more with Randy Gravatt. This is Our American Stories.
2: Black bears weigh between two and five hundred pounds. Brown bears weigh between 300 and over 1,000 pounds. Black bears run away from you. Brown bears run at you. When attacked by a bear, simply lie still on the ground and cover your face and head with your hands. When the bear is finished batting you around and mauling you, contact the U.S. Forest Service.
0: This is Our American Stories, and we pick up where we left off with Randy Gravatt, a man with many jobs at the Grizzly and Wolf Discovery Center in West Yellowstone, Montana, among them running the bear safety product testing. So before we dig into the testing, talk to the audience about the multiple types of bears that are out there. How many types are there that Americans can encounter? And what are they like, these different types? Because the bears are very different uh, as categories, aren't they?
3: Yeah, there's, um, you know, in, in North America, we have, the brown, we have the brown bear, which is also the grizzly bear, and then we have the black bear. The grizzly bears pretty much are only in both uh, in Idaho, Montana, and Wyoming.
0: And they're very intelligent animals. I, I think that needs to be stated, and they're also very food-driven. Talk about those two things.
3: Sure. They're, they're very, very smart. They also have huge appetites, and that's what tends to get them into trouble where we may average 2,000 calories a day, a bear could average 5,000, and then then that number even goes much, much higher right before hibernation. It could be as high as 20,000 calories a day so that they could build up those fat reserves before hibernating.
0: And so where do the problems come between people and bears? I assume it's just the food.
3: It is, it is. Um, when when bears gain access to unsecured food, um, um, uh, unnatural foods, whether it be dog food, whether it be the, the bird feeder, whether it be the garbage, uh, the dirty barbecue grill, um, those bears are going to take full advantage of that easier meal than going out in the woods and tearing apart a log and getting some ants and some, some, some grubs perhaps and, and some blueberries, huckleberries. Um, and so they're going to go the easy route every time. And the problem lies that that when they become, you know, unafraid of people, they become uh, around our houses. There's then uh, the potential for problems, as in a, a bear attack to humans.
0: And, and so, in, in in large measure, many of these problems are occurring in. I would I would assume the outlying suburbs that intersect with nature and intersect with the woods, and even in in traditional suburbia. Talk about
3: that. Sure, sure. As we continue it to expand into into bear country, it, it definitely is a big factor where more problems arise. Uh, where a bear once freely roamed through that meadow, through that field, through that woods. Now there's a mall. Now there's a housing development, perhaps. And, and so it's definitely very, very tough for them. You know, on average, a female bear has a home range of around 50 miles, and a male uh, double that, if not even a little bit more. So they travel a great distance throughout the day, always searching for food.
0: And why, didn't, why and how did the Grizzly and Wolf Discovery Center, where you work, Become the place uh, to test bear safety products. Where, where and how did that happen, Randy?
3: Sure, sure. Well, the Grizzly and Wolf Discovery Center opened in 1993, and we recently, in 2000, became a not-for-profit uh, wildlife park and educational facility. And we were approached by an organization called the IGBC, that stands for Interagency Grizzly Bear Committee, and it's made up of a bunch of members, whether be Forest Service, Park Service, even Parks Canada. Uh, a bunch of uh, great folks and and the idea is for them to um, uh, sustain the bear population to monitor the bear population well, with so many bears being put down that that had gained access to that unnatural foods and the garbage and such, and that were being put down, um, they came up with an idea that uh, there would be a testing program and With our eight grizzly bears, uh, we made the fit, and of around fifteen years ago, we were approached to see if our uh... if we would be willing to do it and it's worked out very well um, so basically what we do is whether it's a manufacturer that produces a cooler a polycart trash can a dumpster uh... they either ship the product here or they bring the product here and then we put it into the bears habitat we do put the bears favorite food inside of it so that would be peanut butter that would be fish honey, um, and and then it has to withstand sixty minutes of contact time most of the containers cannot uh, have a hole larger than an inch and a half. If it does, it is considered a fail. And then there is a, a, another factor with those polycart trash cans, those ones that you'll wheel out to the end of your driveway. A lot of times when they're uh, bear resistant, uh, you and I would take our finger and put it into a latch mechanism to release that lid. Well, that latch system has to work um, when it's done being tested for that 60 minutes.
0: Walk us through a product testing session and what happens. And I love the uh, I love Kabuk or is it Kabuk? The destroy the destroyer is your most skilled testing bear. Talk about him or her, and then talk about what this product testing session looks like. And do you have video of this? Because we'd love to see it.
3: Sure, sure. No, I, I definitely have video of it. Yeah, Kobuck is from Delta Junction, Alaska. Kobuck is actually a river uh, in Delta Junction, Alaska. That's how he got his name. But yeah, he's been here for um, 18 years, and he's uh, earned that uh, nickname as Kobuck the Destroyer because he seems to be able to get into most products. You and I, Lee, we can take our hands, we can, at our wrist, we can turn our hands side to side. Well, Bear cannot do that. and, and, and some of these trash cans that are being tested, it's ones where you and I would take our fingers and reach up and, and release a latch mechanism. Well, grizzly bears with huge front claws, somehow, some way, Kobuck has learned to, to literally twist his wrist a little bit, twist his body, and get those claws up in there and, and release that mechanism. Um, yeah, most most manufacturers fear Kobuck the destroyer, but... Uh, many of our other bears are, are very uh, adept at getting into, a be- into the products because, again, there's that special food reward. We test anywhere from 40 to 80 products a year all summer long is our testing season. And um, uh, so when there is no bears in the habitat, uh, I will take a product, I walk it into the habitat, and this is an acre-and-a-half habitat with two ponds with live fish, we take that product, so we'll talk about a cooler. That cooler is going to have padlocks. It has to have padlocks. They're going to rip the rubber latches off right away. So we put the food in, put the, the locks on, put it out there. We leave the habitat before the bears come out. Every product tested is uh, filmed for documentation. But those bears come out of what we call bear den. They come out, and, and with their sense of smell and their vision, they're able to see that cooler. They're walking up to it. They are... Uh, biting at it, they're chewing at it, they're rolling it around, they're even flipping it up in the air, perhaps to land on a rock, to maybe break the lock open, to break the latch system. Perhaps uh, they're, they're super, super smart, and, and yes, through all these years, because a bear can live up to 30 years long, and, and so some of our bears are very old. And, and through these 15 years of testing, they've learned, you know, better, better ways to get in each, each and every time.
0: Yeah, they've learned some tricks as they get older.
3: They do. They do, again, because of that food reward. Yep. So here's an example, Lee. So let's say we had 10 coolers in a row, and every one of those coolers passed the test. The bears were not able to gain access. Well, the chance of a bear trying to get in that 11th cooler uh, is pretty slim because the first 10 they were not able to get in. So you know the term, we throw them a bone. So what we'll do is we'll take a cooler, Put that same amount of food inside, but maybe uh, just use zip ties versus padlocks. Bears come out, they get in, they get a food reward, and, and it just uh, you know it, it it excites them all over again to to keep uh, testing the products.
0: And the hope here, I would assume, is that the the more uh, bears have no success with human coolers and garbage cans, uh, the better off we all are because there are fewer encounters because the bears don't get that, that beautiful food reward.
3: Exactly. That's the ultimate goal is that it benefits the bears out in the wild. If a bear does not get a food reward from our, our house, our neighborhood, they're going to stay in the woods where they belong. And, and if I may use an example, if we have the Jones and we have um, the Smiths, and the Jones are very, very clean, uh, no bird feeder, no dog food, the barbecue grill, uh, but then the, the neighbors are not so clean – and uh, uh, the uh, mom and two cubs are frequenting the area. Um, it's 11 o'clock at night, and the the clean family they they somebody forgot something in their vehicle, perhaps. They walk outside. It's dark. It's midnight. It's 11 o'clock, and they surprise mom and the cubs. Well. Uh, they end up getting mauled. Where where here, they were the ones that, that were being clean and, and you know careful with their food when their neighbors made the mistake. And that's why we all need to be on that same page and not allow those bears uh, near our homes.
0: Yeah, but it only takes one or two of us to ruin the ruin it life for the bears and for ourselves. So uh, well well taken, point well taken. How can our listeners, Randy, visit and support your Grizzly and Wolf Discovery Center? Talk about that.
3: Sure. Um, Again, we're not-for-profit. We are open every day of the year. Uh, obviously, we have a website, uh, grizzlyandwolfdiscovery.org, and then we ha- do have what's called a uh, the webcam for our wolves, a webcam for our bears so people can view them uh, limited hours in the wintertime, and, and that does bring up something interesting as far as us being 39 below zero this morning. Our bears here at the center, even though we don't do the testing in the wintertime, um, our bears uh, do not hibernate because of a constant food supply. So the same is true for any bear in the wild, whether it be Florida, whether it be Texas, Minnesota. If bears are able to obtain a food source, and whether it be warmer temperatures, they're going to not hibernate and or hibernate for a shorter period of time.
0: Well, Randy, we appreciate you joining us. And we're talking to Randy Gravatt, the Grizzly and Wolf Discovery Center. And, Randy, we'd love to visit you when we go out. Uh, We're out in Jackson. We have an affiliate there, and we'd love to come visit when we get the chance. And thanks so much for joining us.
3: Excellent. Thank you. Sounds good.
0: You bet. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And you can catch all the work we do at ouramericannetwork.org. And if you've got stories like this, and we just consider these great American stories, post them at ouramericannetwork.org. Again, this is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories.